we are live again. This is Rob Rector. Welcome to another edition of Natsukashi. On the line with me is... Ernie Rector. Otherwise known as Gern Blanston. Gern. Hello, Great. Gern. Hello, Gern. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for asking. Excellent, excellent. So, you have chosen Excalibur. Yes, I did. Yes, and we've read a little bit about your past with this. So mm-hmm. we won't we won't linger too long in there. We'll uh, we'll dredge that up later. Um, <laughs> Excellent. I'm looking forward to that. We'll dredge up those demons later. <laughs> They're always present. <laughs> so we are going to talk a little bit about the plot, and then we'll go on to uh, to see if this if this film holds up for you. If it uh, st- still maintains that nice sheen that it once did for you. The air of mystery and fantasy that it once held for yes. my young and inebriated mind. Yes, exactly, and and <laughs> quite stunted mind at that. So. <laughs> yeah, well, that's not changed. Yeah. <laughs> Behold the sword of power, Excalibur. So let's talk a little bit about the plot of Excalibur for those who may not be that familiar with the 1981 film from yeah, John Borman. Uh, John Borman. John Borman. And produced. No, not not John Foreman. That's that's George Foreman's brother. He made the outdoor grill. Didn't quite catch he on. Who invented that? Because it was kind of already invented before that. So yeah, but you know you can't blame a guy for trying. No, no, he he did give it. He did give it his his best. All right, so go ahead. It was John Borman. I thought you said John Foreman. Borman, Borman, yeah. Borman, yes. I did. I did read the thing, but don't don't quote me on you know anything. That's that's difficult. It's it's a it's just another making of the uh, Arthur legend. Set in medieval times, yeah, and um, highly stylized in this particular uh, adaptation. Yeah, it came, I guess, a little bit after Star Wars, right mm-hmm. after Empire Strikes Back, and it seemed like it kind of tried to be a little bit spacey. Am I am I wrong in assuming that? Did you get that vibe too? I, I definitely got a stormtrooper feel off of the armor and and a lot of the interiors, things of that nature, for sure. I, I understand that he originally. In, set out to make a Lord of the Rings film, but couldn't get the rights. Right. So this, I guess this is his fallback film. Well, yeah, <laughs> and it was, it was also his getting back in Good Graces film, because he had just finished uh, Exorcist 2, which he was completely ah. derided on. Um, and, and deservedly so. Um, so he took on Mallory, Le Mort d'Arthur, and decided to uh, go to the Arthurian legend for inspiration. And he altered it a tad bit, but it stayed pretty faithful to the legend, don't you think? Yeah, as far as that you can be faithful to a legend that's had so many versions of it over the years that nobody's quite sure what the original legend was. Right, anyway. exactly. There was quite a few to choose from. So, go ahead and tell us a little bit about the plot itself for those who uh, haven't graduated high school yet. Which I, <laughs> which I think will probably take up the majority of a listenership. It follows <laughs> the life of Arthur Pendragon, son of Uther Pendragon, and he basically was conceived and through the plotting of, I guess, Merlin and was it Morgana, and um, was then given to Merlin as a baby and was raised away from um, the royal family. It wasn't discovered again until he was older, and they have this, I guess, the sword and the stone myth about that. Uh, and his basically a lot around in this one the sword that he was purported to carry given to him by the lovely lady of the lake was played i think by uh borman's daughter yeah one of his three daughters that was in the film yeah it was definitely a little bit of nepotism going on there and i think they both all went on to have stunning and what careers was, in man yeah. film after that what was really even creepier was that the one who played the object of uther pendragon's desire the one who he forced himself upon the the Rape, I guess it was. Yes. Assumed a different 
that, persona and that was his of her husband during the siege and right that was his daughter too that was that was one of Borman's daughters as well and I gotta say though you know even yeah, daughter in a rape scene that that's interesting even back in medieval times though you could tell they they practiced safe sex I mean he kept his armor on the whole time during that entire rape scene. time yeah I, I I do admit that at the time I was pretty fascinated uh, and again in, in reviewing it that that can't be an easy thing to do <laughs> no no I give him credit for that alone even though you know I am certainly not one to support that type of behavior but my god that was that was quite a pretty amazing quite a feat yeah I gotta say I guess if you can ride a horse then you can ride the director's daughter but I'm bummed what's that what's that Camelot the king's castle so go ahead the sword in the stone young Arthur right Removes. And then his um, ascent to king, formation of the round table with the knights that we're also familiar with, Lancelot, Erwin, what are some of the other ones? Gawain. Gawain. Sleepy. Sleepy. Mel. <laughs> Dopey. All those damn nice. All this. And then his love of Guinevere and Guinevere's love of him and Lancelot, basically medieval menage a trois action yeah. and then of course the disaster that befalls them because of that it basically that's it just carries through the the Assyrian legend in a in a very 80s Style film, which which surprisingly enough won some Academy Awards. Yeah, you know, I, I was surprised when you told me that and had to kind of verify that because I really was shocked. I to think learn. they're mostly for costuming and maybe set design or something. I doubt very seriously it had anything to do with the script. I think it had best best boy of 1981. Totally metal head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Especially shiny outfits. <laughs> I remember reading about it in Starlog magazine. Do you remember I that? I remember Starlog. Yes, <laughs> Starlog magazine, and it might have been Fangoria, but I'm pretty sure it was Starlog. And Starlog's big one, yeah. I remember seeing that one night outfit that Arthur's son wore, the one that was the gold-plated one, and I remember it being so awe-inspiring at the time. It was, you know, this this glistening, and it looked dark and moody and scary, and I remember the, the story that accompanied it said something to the fact that it was going to be a, a very violent, sexy tale, and of course... I was way too young to 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 see it. I had to watch the PG rated version of it, which was released simultaneously. But I remember wanting to see it for that night alone, and I never did really imprint it in my memory until I just sat down to watch it again recently. And yeah, that one suit of armor that fascinated me so much as a child now looked like a gay love child of C-3PO and David Hasselhoff. Sure. Yeah, it was, it was, they're all bad kiss outfits at, at some point. And like you say, I think they were attempting maybe to ride on the coattails of Star Wars and I mean, I didn't think... a very stylistic version where everything was shiny and pretty homosexual. I didn't think it could get gayer than C-3PO, but it certainly did, uh, you know. Oh, that film took it to a new level. Yeah, and the Knights of the Round Table, I mean, they had the the nicest suits of armor that I have ever seen. They were extremely tidy knights for as much roaming around in the muck and filth that they did. I can't keep my car nearly that clean. Um, As soon as I wash my car, it gets spots on it. I don't know how they managed to keep their suits of armor that clean. They polished each other quite a bit, it seemed. You have to suspend that if you're going to be part of the magic. It's all done by magic. Merlin, of course. Put a spell on there. Tis true. That's pretty important back then, I think, that that you be manly, chivalrous, and very shiny. (laughs) This is the king's robe, and the knights you joined arms against for his very own. I await the king himself. His knights are in need of training. I am king, and this is the Excalibur. 
sword of kings from the dawn of time. Who are you? What do you seek? I am Lancelot of the lake from across the sea. And I have yet to find a king worthy of my sword. That is a wild boast. You lack a knight's humility. Not a boast, sir, but a curse. For I have never met my match in joust or duel. Overside! I will not. You must retreat. Or prove your worth in the test of arms under the eyes of God. Then may he give me the strength to unhorse you. And send you with one blow back across the sea. Then come across, sir. So, in your recollections, in your misty memories of this film... You had envisioned an entirely different cast. <laughs> Actually, which I don't know if that's a product of films I'd seen in the interim, and I simply just compiled them all. Any medieval film I saw basically got added onto the heap. Or <laughs> if I was really just that confused. Or drunk. Either one. When we were discussing this earlier, and, and you talking about the majestic performance of Max von Sydow and him being wowed by his, his dramatic abilities. Confused it with the Iger sanction or something, I guess. Right. I <laughs> Which, I can see that. That's that's easy to, you know. <laughs> Pretty close. Yeah, they both had shiny knights in them. But this did actually feature several prominent stars' debuts. Yeah, that I remember not at all. Exactly, and not, not, so, <laughs> not so prominent in your memory, but Gabriel Byrne? Was his first film. It was his first film. He starred as Uther Pendragon. In, in the, yeah, he was the uh, guy in the beginning that basically morphed him and had uh, forced sex with the director's daughter. Right. And then we had, who else? Liam Neeson. That was, he his was... His first film also. He was Gawain. So we had Qui-Gon and we had Jean-Luc Picard. So, I mean, this was really... Yeah, uh, Patrick Stewart, right? For, for a sci-fi lover, man, this was this was it. This was the beginning of it all right here. And I'm, I'm actually pretty surprised that I have no real recollection of, of, of them or Helen Mirren in the movie at all. Yeah, I, yeah. It's pretty pathetic considering they are people that I know. It's kind of a strange thing to say that they were riding the coattails of Star Wars and then it ended up being Liam Neeson's first film. That's a, how you connect that to Kevin Bacon, I don't know. It's but the circle of life, my friend, the circle <laughs> of life. Yeah, so that is pretty interesting, but it didn't hold up that well for me. Okay, yeah, let's let's get to that, because, uh, like I said, it's almost nascent, my original recollections of this, and yet, I'll, I'll tell you, it certainly made an impression on me, the most recent viewing that I had. Murder! Why have you done this to me? Because you were born to be king. What does it mean to be king? You will be the land, and the land will be you. If you fail, the land will perish. As you thrive, the land will blossom. But why? Because you are king. No! Let's let's talk about how this held up. Can we start with Arthur, really? With Nigel Terry as Arthur. First, let me go back and say this was made in Ireland in John Borman's literal backyard. And it was mostly outdoor outdoor settings. Then they went in and did ADR on it. They did uh, additional dialogue recording, which means that they recorded pretty much every voice in a the confines of a studio. So think, that while they're standing out in a large field, everybody's voices sound boxed. Yeah, they are all echoey. And it was really jarring because it seemed at times like a badly 
dubbed Japanese film. Am I, did you get that vibe too? I don't recall ever seeing somebody's lips not completely jive, but you did get that feel of discontinuity as you were watching them the second time right here. I never noticed it the first time, I guess. Yeah, it did, you know, now with the technologies and being able to film outside and get those, you know, great sounds outside, back then they had a little more trouble with it and it reminded me sort of the first Tarzan movie where they dubbed over Andy McDowell. Because right, it's right. Like right, that. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or you can't, I can't even watch the film anymore because it just throws me. Yeah, I got that same impression from this. It was hard to pay attention. When Morgana was a little child <laughs> and she goes, My father! And it was this... Obviously, like, 40-year-old lady sounding like Bart Simpson, it was really, it didn't match the the character at all. And Nigel Terry, in particular, he he resembled, to me, a young Richard Lewis. And his overdramatic reading just kind of pronounced that. He, he was, said... He was from Shakespeare in the Park. You were playing to the back row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he was yeah. broad gestures and... Yeah, unfortunately, the acting, um, as well as the dialogue itself, not only did the sound box, but it was... I didn't think it was written that well. Yeah, he just, you felt like he was just going to, he started nervously pacing. He said, oh man, you know, I just hate these suits of armor. They they gave me claustrophobia. I can't handle it. You know, getting uncomfortable. Yeah. Too. The chain mail chaps my nipples. That was the one thing that really stood out to me. And um, Nicole Williamson, is, as Merlin, as respected as an actor as he was, it, some of those readings just seemed to be way, way too dramatic for. Or his actions didn't didn't sync with his voice, and it was just kind of jarring. I didn't think it was a great performance from him either, and I, I know now after reading some that you know he wasn't getting along very well with Helen Marion. He was apparently pretty difficult to work with, but it shows. It shows that he seems to be not very content with his, his role, and that that headpiece had to hurt. Oh yeah, I mean, no doubt. Headaches and it got cold. I mean, come on. Yeah, know. the medieval yarmulke. Metal yarmulke. <laughs> <laughs> I, I imagine that the premise was that it somehow concentrated his magicness. <laughs> magicness. But, um, That's it, a good it, word. It, and at the first at the first showing, I remember thinking that was kind of cool, but this time around, it was just sort of contrived. Yeah, I'd say quite. Behold, the sword of power, Excalibur. Let's recount your latest viewing of it. And what held up and what didn't? Uh, not much held up. Um, it, it, it is enjoyable seeing Liam Neeson and um, Gabriel Byrne in, in their starting roles, even though, you know, it wasn't all that big a film for either of them. Um, just the fact that I was watching it after so long held some appeal. But to be honest with you, mostly, no. It, it just didn't work for me. I since then read a lot of history and aside from colonial America medieval is one of my favorite time periods and have read quite a bit about what life was actually like then and I can't separate the two. It's hard for me to pull back from it now and say well you know this wasn't meant to be factual. There's just too many inconsistencies and I find myself picking them out of the scene. Every little piece of the scene that's not right and it's hard to concentrate on, on something and really get full enjoyment out of it when you're busy going well he wouldn't have sat that way or he couldn't carry a sword like that that, that doesn't that's not even right that's foolish and uh, the armor we won't, even, we won't go into the armor we've already said all we needed to say about the armor the- so yeah so no not really you know I prefer to keep my old memories about it I, I don't think that I can translate it into new ones because if I saw the film for the first time today I probably would not have made it through the film I probably would have bailed on it after the first half hour or so and, that, and never quite completed it but that was a different 
time. You know what really ruined it for me, I think, was Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You keep uh, drawing comparisons to what was probably the definitive. It was. <laughs> it really was. And every time, you know, when they'd have these great panning shots of these peasants working in the field, I kept thinking, <laughs> Dennis, there's some lovely filth over here. You know. Now you see the violence inherent in the system. Yes. I'm being repressed. Exactly. I, I quoted so many lines, and even when there was a line when they were riding into town, I would make the meow sound as a cat was being <laughs> randomly beaten and uh, up against I, the wall. I made reference to that in the bit I wrote also with the uh, Lady of the Lake or the Watery Tart. Wa- yes, a Moistened Bim, I believe. Moistened Bim. Moistened yes, Bim. That's, uh, obviously why I was watching it again. That kept popping into my head, too. And Camelot, Camelot, it's just it, a model. It's only a model. <laughs> In the end, I would have to say that, unfortunately, it's kind of sad. I had an idea that there was going to be some laughter involved in some of the things, but I thought that perhaps in the end it might come through, but it's just just really a poor movie, beginning to end, poor story, um, poor acting. Uh, I'd like to even say the costumes were cool, but no, it didn't really work out that way. You have broken what could not be broken. Now it is time for our official sign-off. Thank you for coming back to Natsukashi, where we wax nostalgic through cinema. My name is Rob Rector. I was busy waxing something else. Um, <laughs> my name is Ernest Gern Rector. I am Lancelot of the Lake. Come back and visit us all again on yet another edition of Natsukashi. Natsukashi. <laughs>